ask you, if you will, to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Be looking Ephesians chapter 6, verses 16 to the first part of verse 18. Wow, what a morning already. Thank you, Pastor Kevin, for the worship already again. And uh, we're excited to be able to look to God's word together as we have already sung praises to his name and thanked him for being our living hope. We're going to look this morning at our last piece of the armor, if you will. So we'll have one more sermon in this series next week, closing out those 10 verses there in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Next week, looking at the importance of prayer, the importance of prayer as we sum all of this up, as we face the schemes of the devil. This morning, we're going to consider the sword of the spirit, the sword of the spirit. So I'm going to read here, continuing in Ephesians chapter six. I'll read this whole sentence together. We discussed the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation last week. Now this morning, the sword of the spirit. Let's read Paul's words together. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be able to sing praises to your name this morning, to hear about your word going around the world, to rejoice in those who have joined us, to be a part of us as members. What a, what a blessing this is to be able to gather together. And I pray even now as we are in this room, gathered in this place, that no one is taking this opportunity for granted. Father, what a blessing it is to have your word, to have your truth, to be able to rejoice in it, and to be able to look around this room and see others rejoicing in it. What a comfort that is for our souls. So this morning, Father, I just pray that we would take your word through the power of your spirit. It would be applied to the hearts and lives of each and every person here, that you would mold us and shape us and equip us to proclaim your good news. All of this we ask in the power of the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I remember my first time leading worship. Y'all can giggle at that if you want to. I mean, let's go ahead. But I was working at a camp, and I was the new kid at camp on staff. And I was told early, uh, you know, that there may be a time that you may have to lead worship if something were to not work out. And so the first week on the first morning, we gathered together to worship and I'm just minding my own business, really trying to let everybody, uh, keep everybody fooled that I thought I know what I was doing and I didn't. And so I'm sitting there minding my own business and they tell me that morning about 10 minutes before it starts, you're leading worship this morning, Kevin. And I'm looking around and we got a camp of about 200 elementary age kids. And I'm responsible for leading them in worship. And so I'm sitting here thinking this through. I didn't know it was coming. I got about 10 minutes to prepare. I don't know what's happening. I said, do I have any instruments? Because I can't play any. They said, no, you're on your own, acapella. All right, I got this. So I get up and somehow, not really even knowing what I'm about to do, in the recesses of my heart and my mind, I pulled out a song Miss Sylvia taught me in Discipleship Training Union. I don't know if y'all know what that is, but you'll figure it out. 
And I remember this, and I don't know why it was this song, I don't know what I did, but I just got up in front of these kids, and I did my hands like this, and I said, if I had a little white box, I sang it, and I'm not going to do that this morning, it's okay. If I had a little white box to put my Jesus in, I'd take him out and and share him with a friend. Y'all got that? (laughs) Then I turned angry. But if I had a little black box to put the devil in, I'd take him out and smash his face (laughs) and put him back again. The kids were stunned. They sat there looking at me with no expression. And then all of a sudden, one boy said, do it again. (laughs) So, just to be clear, the first time I led worship, I got an encore. Just letting y'all know. It would be great, and I really wish this morning I could say the battle against the schemes of the devil were that simple and easy. And even if they were, even if we're able to smash his face and put him back again, the devil is relentless. And he keeps coming back over and over and over. So even if it were that simple, it would be relentless upon us. In fact, as God's people, the most common metaphor that's used in Scripture to describe us are sheep. And the way that Peter describes the devil is he is the adversary roaming around like a roaring lion. And what protection does the sheep have against this roaring lion who can feast upon us? The only protection, as Paul tells us, is that we would put up or take on the armor that God has provided for us. That we would take what he has provided through his son Christ and we would put that on. And as we've looked through this armor now, getting to this last piece this morning, all of the pieces so far have been either defensive in nature or functional for us. The first, the belt of truth. We strap on that girdle of truth, if you will, so that we'll be ready to move and free to move in God's word and God's truth. Free to move in battle in the midst of it. Functional helps us to move quickly and understand what's going on. The breastplate of righteousness, a, a defensive one that protects our most precious precious organs, if you will, our heart, which is covered in the righteousness of Christ, no longer ours, but his. And the gospel shoes we put on that functionally help us to march in the midst of the battle with the gospel going with us in every step that we go in. Or the shield of faith, deflecting all of the enemy's arrows, flaming arrows, as the scripture says, by trusting in God and his promises. Or the helmet of salvation, which reminds us that God has saved us, and whatever the accuser can bring against us, it has no power over us, because we are his children saved by grace. All of these so far have been defensive or functional for us and helping us face the battle and schemes of the devil. And finally, as we get to our last piece this morning, we come to the only piece of the armor that is offensive in nature, not defensive. We come to the only one that's the weapon that we take up in the midst of the battle, which is the sword of the spirit, the Lord uh, Paul calls it. 
The word Paul uses here for sword testifies to the very nature of the battle itself. Paul does not use the word that was available to him for a long sword that would uh, denote some sort of elegant sword fighting battle. He uses the word that's for a small dagger-like weapon that can be grabbed up and taken. And when that dagger-like weapon was used in battle, it was used in close contact. It was used up close and personal, if you will. Paul uses this word because he knows that the fight that we face against the devil is one that is close, one that is fierce, one that is messy, one that is highly personal, that this battle is going to take place in the very depths of who we are and in the life that we, that we have every day. So Paul addresses this and highlights the battle itself. And he states, if we're going to fight, his point here is if we're going to defeat our temptations, if we're going to seek to live fruitful, holy lives, if we're going to, to fight against the schemes of the devil, then we must get up close and personal and set to work with the word of God and the sword of the Spirit. And the sword of the Spirit. So now Paul, as he comes to this, tells us what the sword of the Spirit of is. He says in our passage, as you can see, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Paul wants to make it very clear that the Spirit of God and the Word of God are intricately related. In fact, they work so closely together that you don't see them separate. Where the Spirit of God is working, it is in the Word of God as it works with. Where the Word of God is working, it is in the power of the Spirit of God. These two things go together. The Spirit is not going to tell you to do something opposite of the Word. And the Word is not going to tell you to do something opposite without the power of the Spirit. They go together so closely as we look to this passage. In fact, Paul puts it like this when he's writing to Timothy in Timothy chapter 3, a passage, a verse we already read this morning. He says, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God. This idea of being breathed out in the Old Testament, uh, the spirit of God is referred to as the breath of God in many places. So Paul is saying, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All of scripture is breathed out by the spirit of God. It comes to us through the spirit of God. This is the definition, if you will, of the word inspiration. We believe that God's word is inspired. Inspired by God and his spirit. God's word is inspired in verse chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 tells us this. In fact, if I can get technical with you for a moment, which may help you. We believe inspiration, we refer to it as this the verbal plenary inspiration of God's word. The verbal plenary inspiration of God's word. Now those words are important. You may not use them every day, but they're important because we believe that the definition of inspiration is the fact that every word that we have in God's scripture that he's given us, every single word is inspired. That's why we call it the verbal inspiration. Every word is inspired. Not just ideas are inspired. Not just concepts are inspired. But every single word that we have in the scriptures are inspired by God. Given to us through the spirit of God. But then we also say it's the plenary, verbal plenary. That means inspiration extends to all parts of scripture. To all subject matters it touches on. Everything we have is inspired by God. All parts of it, every piece. One of the great lies, and we'll get back to this in a minute. One of the great lies that the devil tries to give us, the great lie of the devil himself, is to get you to question God's word. 
to get you to question whether or not it is true. He may get you to think that only parts of the Bible are inspired. He may get you to think there's only some pieces that you need to look at. He may get you to pick and choose which ones you may like. But I want you to notice the ridiculous nature of that itself. If you believe you can pick and choose what you like out of this book because some things you may not like, others you do. If you believe you can pick and choose, you're actually setting yourself up as the great arbitrator of all truth. You think you're wiser and smarter than God, but what God has given us completely from beginning to end are the very words that God wanted written down. In other words, this is one book. Although it's got 66 different books here, 40, roughly 40 human authors written over a period of 1,400 years, what we have in our hands is one book with one subject. From beginning to end, it's God's word that tells us how he has saved humanity through his son, Jesus Christ, and redeeming all things back to himself. It's God's word of how salvation has come. One book with one subject, and this one book with one subject has one main author. As I said, there may be 40 human authors over 1,400 years, but there is one main author according to this word, and that one main author is the Holy Spirit himself, having inspired every writer to write just what he would have them to write for God's glory. So every word we have, everything here is part of it. Now, don't get mad at me. I already told you a funny story about this. So if you get mad at me, think of the funny story. I am not one who's a big fan of red letter editions. Here's why. Oftentimes we look at it and we see it. Now you can have it. Don't get mad. Don't sell it. Don't do anything. It's good. We look at it and we oftentimes put too much weight on the words that Jesus said himself. You say, Josh, that's what Jesus said. Absolutely. But what Jesus said in the Gospels and what Jesus inspired through his Holy Spirit to Paul are the same level of authority that we look to in our life. Not one is weighted more than the other. Every word that comes here, whether it's Paul or Peter or the author in Hebrews and the author writers of the Gospels that wrote down the words of Christ, every single word is inspired. Therefore, every single word is final and decisive and authoritative for our lives. Every bit of it. So we can't set Paul up against John or Peter up against James. We don't set any writer up against each other. It's all God's word for his glory, salt for our good. The word of God has everything we need for life and salvation. It fully equips us to handle every scheme of the devil. In fact, it slashes at the devil to the point that it cuts him with no power reduces his arguments to nothing. And so we offensively take up the word of God. Not only has the spirit inspired, God breathed out his word, but Paul's point here is that the spirit itself is gonna give or make the word effective and powerful. So God's word has been inspired by the spirit, that's why they go together, but also it's the spirit who takes the word of God and makes it effective and powerful in our hearts and in our lives. Hebrews chapter four the author of Hebrews says this, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Many people would try to get you to believe. In fact, one of the great lies of the devil is to say that this book's 2,000 years old. What can it do to speak to you today? But because it is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God who sees things all at the same time and knows what we all need at every point in time, this book is especially relevant for us even now at this point. 
Because it's the spirit that takes it and applies it to our heart in every situation, every life. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces us to the very division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart itself, the author of Hebrews says. It's the word of God who does this work. But through the spirit of God. And it's the spirit of God that gives the effectiveness of the word. The spirit applies the word in our hearts and our lives, in every way, in everything. So for us, we look at God's word as the inspired word of God through the spirit of God that the, in, the spirit gives its power to do its work in our hearts and in our lives and everywhere we go. Now let's, if we can, maybe look at this in action, if you will. I want to point you to a passage in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter four. In Matthew's gospel, I want to see the word of God, the spirit, sword of the spirit, the word of God in action against the devil himself. And we're going to look to our savior, Jesus Christ. We all know, as I said earlier, Satan's most commonly used tactic is to get you to question the word of God. His most commonly used tactic is to get you. In fact, we recognize this. When Satan pulled, pulled up on the scene for the first time in Genesis chapter 3, he came strong with his tactics. No way was he going to waste this opportunity. No way was he going to step into the garden and fail at what he was doing. He was going to use his best tactic. He was going to use his best idea to get Adam and Eve to turn from God. He was going to use his best. And how did he begin his statement to them? Did God really say? Did God really say? This is how Satan starts his attack, even in Genesis 3, even at the first sin. Did God really say that? The first time I hear it happens, Adam and Eve are in this beautiful paradise of a garden where the Lord walked with them day and night. And when the serpent comes in, he seeks to get them to question, to question God's word. Did God really say and he's been, by the way, using that line ever since. In each and every heart, in each and every life, Satan's been using that line ever since. How do we know God spoke? How do you know these things are true? Did God really say you shouldn't do that? Each and every one of us deal with that temptation all the time, the questioning of God's word. And so here, Satan's been using this over and over again in lives. And you may be faced with this as well every single day, trusting God's word. Did he really say the sins of men and women throughout scripture come so often because they did not trust to follow the word of God? They questioned it. But then comes Jesus. Then comes Jesus. And one scene in particular speaks to this having just been baptized by John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist dunks Jesus up. I said dunks Jesus underwater. We're Baptists. I just want to make sure y'all heard that. Brings him back up and the spirit, the heavens open up and the spirit descends like a dove. And there at the baptism, what does the Lord say from heaven so that all can hear? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is him. And what's amazing is he says this, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. The very next verse, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he's led into the wilderness to be tempted. Not in a paradise like Adam and Eve were, 
but in a wilderness. In many ways, I believe this reflects the nature of Israel themselves. If you're familiar with the Old Testament passage, remember after Israel leaves out of Egypt headed to the promised land, they sin against God. They rebel against him. They question his goodness. Did, is he going to provide food? You're going to leave us out here to starve to death. They, they put him to the test, hoping that he would, he would come around. They, they, they want something without fighting for it. They're looking for all of these things, and Satan gets them to question over and over again God's word. And there, because of that, for 40 years, they're wandering around in the wilderness. So here comes Jesus, and he's led into the wilderness again. And this time it's not 40 years, but it's 40 days and 40 nights. And God doesn't provide any food for him. There he fasts. Remember, whenever the Israelites go into the wilderness, they say, you're going to leave us out here to die? We don't have any food. And here... After question, they question God's word and his truth, but here Jesus steps into the wilderness. After just hearing the voice of God come down from heaven, this is my beloved son. This is him in whom I'm well pleased. And now Jesus finds himself in a wilderness all alone with no food and with nothing. And Satan at that point, seeing this opportunity like he saw it with Israel in the Old Testament, he comes in. And what is his attack? What is his plan? His plan as he comes, as he comes to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and he wants him to question God's word. If you are the son of God, remember, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Is that true? If you're the son of God, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus responds with Deuteronomy chapter 8. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan being rebuffed by the sword of the spirit, if you know what I mean, backs up and he comes at him again using another tactic, but one that's quite similar. He quotes scripture, but he twists it to make it say what he wants. He's going to quote Psalm 91. I was telling him in the earlier service, I, somebody sent me a picture. Y'all know those little, those little cards that you flip every day and it gives you a new verse all the time, right? You got those cards that you flip. Well, somebody flipped one one day, and the card said, He will command his angels concerning you. Matthew chapter 4, verse 6. That's Satan talking, y'all. That's what I'm getting at. It's Psalm 91, but here Satan takes Psalm 91, and he twists it for his own advantage. He twists it to Jesus. God has forgotten you. Look at your circumstances. He's leaving you out here to die. And he says, he said he'll command his angels concerning you. Oh, or their hands will bear you up. Is that true? He has forgotten you. Put him to the test. Has he really forgotten you? And Jesus responds, you should not put the Lord God to your test. Quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. And then third and finally, Satan takes Jesus up to a high peak and he looks out over all of creation and the kingdom and he says, this could be yours. This could be yours. Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world. He says, all of this can be yours if you will simply worship me. Here's what Satan's trying to do, by the way. Jesus knows he's already going to get all of those kingdoms, right? The scripture's already been clear. Remember what Daniel said, the ancient of days, the, the son of man will come to the ancient of days and all kingdoms and authority and dominion will be his. 
But for Jesus to get all the kingdoms, what's going to have to happen? He's going to have to follow the plan of God himself who sent him. And the plan of God himself was for Jesus not just to come and inherit them, for him to go to the cross. And through going to the cross, he wins them through his own sacrifice and his own blood. Satan knows if Jesus goes to the cross, then he's defeated. So what Satan's trying to get Jesus to do is skip the cross. I'll give you all this. Just worship me. He's trying to get Jesus to skip the cross. And in that sense, he's trying to get him to question the very plan of God. Do you really trust God? You're going to do all of this? You're going to go to the cross? You're going to go to all of these things? You really trust him to give you all this? All you got to do is worship me, and I won't make you do all that stuff. I won't make you go to the cross. I won't make you suffer. You just worship me, and I'll give it all to you. How often, by the way, do we hear the nonsense or the idea that that instant gratification, we can receive all of these things? Satan tells Jesus, I'll give it all. Don't trust him with his plan. And Jesus responds, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Three times when Satan comes to Jesus, what does Jesus do? He takes up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And some of us in this room, I'm not pointing out anybody, don't feel bad. Some of us hadn't even read Deuteronomy, much less think that Deuteronomy is going to help you fight against the schemes of the devil. But here Jesus takes the very words of God from, the, from Deuteronomy itself and says, listen here, Satan, you have no power against the truths of God's word. And he rebuffs him over and over again with the sword of the spirit. What can we learn from this then? How do we handle God's word? First of all, we must know it. Jesus knew it. When he comes to the first temptation, and he says, these stones, you, you can turn these stones to bread. And What? The word of God is my bread. It's my sustenance. Jesus knew God's word, and when he knew it, he knew how to handle the attacks of the devil himself. We must know it. We must read it. Listen to me. I've said this a thousand times. You hear me say it a thousand more. Because I've never in my life met a believer, a follower of Jesus that read God's word and what? Got up and said, man, I wish I hadn't done that. God's word is life to us. And the more we read it, the more we know it, the more we want it. And what we must do through the power of the spirit is take up God's word and seek to know it. Seek to know it. What does it say? You've got to hide it in your heart before you can ever attack with it to the devil. We know God's word and we read God's word. Let me encourage you, whatever method you may be using, if it is not getting you into the word of God, it's not sufficient for you. Whatever you may be doing in your life weekly, if it's not pointing you to the word and getting you to read God's word, it's not enough. We must know God's word. We must read it. But not only that, we must understand it. When the devil throws at Jesus the use of Psalm 91 in a wrong way, when he throws at Jesus that, he's using scripture. The devil loves to do this. He loves to bring out scripture and get you to think that's good or that's sufficient. Right? That's in the Bible. But he applies it the wrong way and he seeks to understand it in the wrong way. Not only must we know it, we must seek to understand it in the way God has taught it through the spirit to us. Don't think you're too dumb to do such a thing either. God's word through the power of the spirit is understood by those who are young and those who are old. 
And the opportunity there for us is not just to know it, but to understand it and how it works and how it applies in our hearts and our lives. And we work very hard. Pastor Jeremy with our equipment minister works very hard in our congregation, in our church to make sure you have everything you need to know and understand God's word. There's no excuses for that here. We must not just know it. We must understand it because Satan's going to attack you with the word of God itself. The word of God itself. But not only do we know it and understand it, we must also trust it. We must trust what it says is true. Satan's going to get you to say, look around at your circumstances. Look around at what's going on. Did God really love you? Does he really love you? Look around what's happening in your life. Look around you what's going on. Here's what he is. Jesus having heard the word of God. This is my beloved son. He's basically looking at Jesus and saying, does he really love you? He's left you in a wilderness with no food. He's got a plan for you to go to a cross and die in that place. Does he really love you? And Jesus' response is, his response testifies, I'm going to worship him. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust his word. I'm going to trust what God says. I'm going to trust what he tells me to do. I'm going to trust after him and follow after him. We must not only know the word, understand it, but we must trust it. And if we're going to wield the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, we must know it. We must understand it. We must trust it. We must trust it. And by all means, it is trustworthy. But I'm going to add one more. I think those three line up there with the testimony and the temptations of Jesus, knowing it, understanding it, trusting it. I'm going to add one more this morning. Not only do we need to know it, understand it, and trust it, we must proclaim it. We must proclaim it. In other words, we see two parts of the word. We hide it in our heart. That's what we call the scalpel work of the surgeon, if you will, and how the word carves us, molds us, and shapes us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. It shapes us and molds us, cutting off the sinful flesh, if you will, carving us and molding us into his righteousness, into his glory. We want to see the word do that, so we intake it so it can do that in our heart, in our life. But that is not enough, according to Scripture. Not enough just to take it in, because taking it in is going to necessarily lead that it must be proclaimed. It must be proclaimed. We must proclaim God's word. In our passage, Paul uses the word rima, the Greek word rima, the sword of the spirit is the rima of God. It means word. There's another one, logos and rima. It's used interchangeably. Mostly Paul uses logos, which means word. But rima goes toward the spoken word. Logos speaks of the written word, if you will. Rima points toward the word proclaimed, the spoken word. And so here Paul is saying that the sword of the spirit is the rema of God, the spoken word of God. Not only we intake it and carve us up, but it must come out of us spoken from us. We must speak it. We must speak it. And our confidence builds here. The temptation for you may be to think that you're not smart enough or wise enough to handle it. But let me tell you how it works. The confidence we have to speak God's word doesn't just begin with whatever gifts and talents we have to speak. The confidence we have to speak God's word starts with us knowing it. And when you know it, then you seek to understand it. 
And when you start understanding it, you, you start trusting it. And when you trust it, you know that we must proclaim it. Why must we claim it? Because when we read God's word, understand it, and trust it, we recognize it's the only hope for my friend, my neighbor, me, my family, my kids, for everyone. This is the hope that we have. And so we must give this out so our confidence builds. The more we know, the more we understand, the more we trust, the more we speak. The more we speak. Many of us have hesitancy to proclaim the word of God. I'm not telling you, you got to get up and do that today. What I'm telling you is, you've got to start looking to know it. Just start knowing it first. Reading it. Understanding it. Trusting it. I promise you, then you'll start speaking it. Just know it. The spirit of God inspires the word, gives it effectiveness, and gives the power to it as it's proclaimed. Gives the power to it as proclaimed. I'm thankful. I'm thankful as we consider this morning our brother brought up the Gideons. We have the opportunity to give. I was in South Asia in a hotel and I was a young kid traveling and I went into the hotel and I, I got in there and I was traveling with a friend and I looked up, I laid down the bed after a long journey, looked up and recognized I wasn't in the, I wasn't in Red Bank, South Carolina anymore. There's a arrow on the roof in the corner, on the ceiling in the corner of the hotel room. I was like, what's that arrow for? And this guy was traveling, was older, he'd traveled a good bit. He said, that points towards Mecca. Tells the Muslims which way to pray. And I was overwhelmed with sadness even and darkness. But I was thankful that day. Because even in that room with that arrow, somehow a Gideon Bible was in the office. I was in the desk. And we've got promises in God's word. We got promises that whenever God's word goes out, it will not return null and void. That the spirit of God will take the proclamation of his word and it will apply it in just the way it wants to be applied. In fact, I would tell you this morning that every single one of you that are in this room and hearing my voice, the spirit of God is at work even right now applying the word proclaimed to your heart just as he would have it. It's not coming back null and void. And if that's the case, if God's word proclaimed is going to do work for God's glory, then by all means, let's know it, let's understand it, let's trust it, let's proclaim it. And we recognize that Satan has no authority against it. We slash him with one slash after another as we proclaim the word of God. We put on this armor. The first piece was the belt of truth. We function by girding ourselves up with truth. And the last piece is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The bookends of the armor of God, the first piece and the last piece, finds itself in God's word. So let's be faithful believers to know it, to read it. Let's be faithful followers to trust it and proclaim it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and your kindness. And man, you, you've given us your word. What a blessing, Father. So God, help us not neglect that this morning. Help each and every one of us consider your word in our hearts and in our lives. Help each and every one of us commit ourselves every day and all the more to know your word, understand it, and trust it, and proclaim it. God, in this way, we take up the sword of the Spirit 
And we go after the schemes of the devil with the word of God. May that be true here with each and every heart and each and every life. My call to each and every one of you, my invitation, if you will, today is just simply this. Let the word of God reign in your heart. Commit yourself again to know it. Commit yourself again to understand it. Commit yourself again to trust it. Let God's word become precious to you. And if that preciousness has fallen to the side, I pray even now that God through his spirit would make it precious again. If you want to know the scriptures and know the Savior in the scriptures and you don't know him, let me tell you of him today. I'll be standing here at the front. If you want to join, you see so many joining and being part of what we're doing as we proclaim God's word here. We'll be standing as the front as we stand up to sing. Let's rejoice in the Lord. Let's stand.